Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. I'm delighted today to have Jay Allen, founder of My True North, as my guest. Jay, could you give us a little bit about who you are and who you serve? Sure. I'm Jay Allen. I formed My True North back in 2015, but prior to that, I started off life as an advanced trauma medic in the British Army. I spent 12 and a half years serving the uh, soldiers of this world on operational tours around the world. I thought that was going to be a career for life until I had quite a significant accident in the second Gulf, which ultimately determined that I was medically discharged in 2003. And then since then, I've either operated at director level or regional director level for two of the largest high streets on the, in the country, and then subsequently in public sector, predominantly in change management. I got sick to death of the rat race and finally became an entrepreneur, set up my own business. This is the third business I've owned now. I exited twice, one in 2011, one in 2014, and now set up True North to try and help others do the same. And who do you typically serve? We work predominantly with business owners or business leaders, if they're not the owner-manager of the business, to be able to help them to significantly and sustainable grow both themselves and their business, with the ultimate aims to be able to add a zero to the personal disposable income. Excellent. I'd like to cover that in a second. Before I do, do you mind telling me a little bit about your backstory that created your purpose? Sure. So... Like I say, having spent 12 years in the British Army as a rapid deployment advanced trauma medic, I was convinced that that was my career, that was my calling. I was enjoying everything I was doing. It was a work hard, play harder mentality. And I was convinced that that was my career. And then after a series of incidents over a period of 48 hours, which predominantly determined that everything that I thought was going to be my career for the rest of the life suddenly came to a very abrupt and unexpected end when I had a physical accident in the second Gulf. I was flown back to Headley Court and the incredible people that there are at Headley Court to try and rebuild broken people. And then subsequently had a a mental breakdown, was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and had a mental breakdown whilst in recovery and suddenly came to the realisation that your mental health and your physical well-being are one and the same and you can't have one unless you treat both. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key lessons that we teach our clients is that you'll only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. And I know that My True North is really very heavily invested in understanding and teaching that. Why My True North? So I'm very conscious of the fact that there are multitude of coaches and consultants and mentors out there. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that we're an, an anomaly. But I'm very conscious of the fact that in my own experience, having worked with a number of coaches in the past for my own progression, that there was this almost this creation of a reliance on the coach. They would offer a 12-month or a 24-month, sometimes even a 36-month program, where regardless of who you were and your previous past experience or capability, they had a program. The 36-model program was of particular interest to me because I looked at the program and I identified that there were seven things out of their program that I really wanted to be able to benefit from and learn from. And I asked whether I could possibly buy into those seven units. Oh, no, 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 that's not possible. No, no, we have this program and you need to start at the beginning. You will always learn something. And it was just a tie-in. And I was really concerned with regards to, well, perhaps that doesn't work for everyone. So True North comes again from a military background and being able to have absolute clarity and not only where you are now and where you've come from, but but where are you heading? And the backstory realistically is, Marcus, let me quickly ask you, let's assume for one minute that your life goal was to say that you trekked to the North Pole. Now, don't get me wrong, I know it's a little bit obscure and a little bit obscene and perhaps not something that all of us wants to do, but I'm a firm believer in having something that's such an audacious goal, something really big to aim for, and trekking to the North Pole. It's not like you can jump on a Stelios jet and fly out for the weekend. It, it will involve a certain amount of training and experience, maybe a team, certainly having some the right equipment with you. And then on the day of your choosing, with your team around you, having all done the training, it'll be that you'll utter those inaugural words, right, chaps, follow me. 
And no doubt you'll have the compass and you'll wait for the needle on the compass to point north and you'll head off and religiously follow the needle. And I'm really scared to tell you that if you set off from where we are right now and religiously follow the needle, you'll find yourself in Scandinavia because you're following magnetic north. Which is moving 55 miles kilometers a year which is moving 55 kilometers a year my god you know your stuff this is great (laughs) but also 11 degrees this year is 11 degrees to the east of true north and depending on what time of day you set out what time of year you set out well depending on whereabouts in that 55 mile parameter you might stumble across the true north pole And it's exactly the same in business. We all set out with a goal. We all have these aspirations about what success looks like, but then we get so busy in the day-to-day trudgery of moving forward, of doing stuff, that perhaps we forget to stop and to recalibrate, even if it's just the one degree that will make us the difference between getting somewhere and actually getting where we set out to be. So True North only operates for 11 months of the year in reflection of the 11 degrees of difference between true north and magnetic north. And we offer a stopgap, a means of being able to take reflection on the eight fundamental segments in any business to ensure that all of them are pointing towards where you aim to exit the business successfully, as opposed to just in the business of business, the busyness of business. So can you take us through those eight steps? Sure. So this is where the at zero thing comes from. My first business, we accelerated very, very quickly. I cheated, and I take my hat off to anyone that's started on day one with a a laptop and a phone and an idea. I cheated. I bought an existing business. It had been trading for 14 years. It had got three members of staff. It had got a full order book. And the only reason it was for sale was that the business owner had recently been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And all of a sudden, there's a life work balance that he wanted to address. And I bought the business as a going concern. The only condition was that I, under two regulations, I had to take on the three members of staff. I wasn't allowed to make any redundancies. And I bought a business, lock, stock and barrel, in the October of 2005. And very quickly, we accelerated to the extent that I sold that business back to the three original employees with 19 other members of staff four and a half years later. Very good. We won a couple of awards for it. but And that's the story I always tell people. That's the, that's the exciting motivational story that everyone wants to hear. The bit that I tend to forget is the <laughs> point where we grew so significantly that I broke my own golden rule, and as a result of which, ended up having to make seven people redundant about nine weeks before Christmas. Mm. And I assure you, in 12 years on the battlefield, I have never been so mortally injured as the time where I had to stand in front of some people that I'd taken on and said, I've made a mistake to which you're now going to have to pay the price. That's tough. Yeah. So those eight areas of the business, what Ah, are they? My apologies. So the reason that we lost, the reason that we made people redundant was on the basis that we'd won a national contract and subsequently the national contract went into receivership. Uh And at the time that they went into receivership, they owed us a couple of thousand short of 100,000 quid. And I couldn't understand, I couldn't fathom as to how a business that was professed with 886 stores across the UK was invoicing somewhere in the region of £10.5 million a week in revenue, how it could possibly fail. I just couldn't understand as to how such a household name could subsequently grow and fail. So what I started to do with True North was to say, So what causes failure? Initially, I I went to KPMG. I did a public access service request to be able to get all of the data that they've had on the business that caused us such a problem. And I started to look at the data to understand what failure looked like. And very quickly, I realized that I was too emotionally involved, even five years post-sale, that I needed some things to compare against. So we started to submit data access requests for other national businesses that had failed. And initially, we requested six. And then the more information we got, the more startling the results were that I started to ask for more and more and more. And over four years, I studied 153 national business failures. And what I found was startling because the elephant was in the room in all 153 businesses, which in actual fact suggested that under a set of circumstances, not necessarily that uncommon, 
in modern business, like a, a recession or a hostile takeover bid or a change in business or grant system or a change in government, and they were destined to fail. They knew that there was errors in the business, holes in the business, huge elephants in the room that they weren't addressing. So I wanted to understand as to uh, what size of business do we get to before these become an error, a problem, a risk. So we took the same data research and we went to both the Federation of Small Businesses and the Chamber of Commerce and collectively asked them to audit their 336,000 member of SME small businesses. We managed to encourage them to entice the members. We offered some form of incentive to be able to get a good response. And we had 171,000 respondents. Wow who confirmed that my worst fears that SME businesses, micro-businesses, solopreneurs still had at least one, some two, if not all three of the flaws we found in big business, which determined that under certain circumstances, like a recession, they were also destined to fail. So what we did is we took all of the research and all of the data and we said, how do we provide a fail-safe system to at least teach people what are the eight steps that people need to be aware of that prevent them from either going or growing broke? And that is our Add a Zero Challenge. So tell me, what are the big three? Give us the reveal. So first of all, 141 of the 153 largest companies in the country that failed either didn't have a business plan or their business plan was more than three years out of date. And they'd strayed from the path and hadn't acknowledged that the plan that had got them to where they were was no longer the plan they were following. And that usually came about because either they'd hired a new senior hire who wanted to be able to make a good impression, or they'd got their own method of doing things, or somebody had come along and determined that a shiny object syndrome, SOS, that, oh, that looks like a good idea, and it had taken the business off on a tangent. And that's the biggest fundamental problem with businesses, small and large, is that we can all find that shiny object syndrome without acknowledging, is this keeping me on course to what I want to achieve as my overall success? Or is it simply something that looks like a good idea, which in actual fact is taking my either time, my effort, my energy, my resource away from what it was that I set out to do in the first place? So what I'm interpreting from that is the number one mistake is winging it. Absolutely, yeah. There are so many business owners, predominantly small business owners, that seems to have this misconceived perception that a business plan is only required if you want funding. And the simple fact is, it's not about the plan itself. It's not about presenting me as a coach with your business plan saying, look, I've got a plan. It's about the fundamental thinking about what to include in the plan and why we need to include it in order that we know that we're on trajectory, that we're on the right path. It's the thinking that is involved in applying a business plan or going back to a business plan and saying, are we still on track, as opposed to the finished article itself. Okay, so you need to know where you're headed and to track where you're going so that you can know whether you're making progress and you're on course. Absolutely. You know, if you think about an, the explorers of old that only had a compass under the sun, the only way you can ever plot a course successfully is to know where are you heading, where have you come from, and where are you now, and to get the trajectory between the three. And yet so many people are in the busyness of business doing things on such a day-to-day -day basis that they forget to stop and be a meerkat Stand up and have a good look round. <laughs> that makes sense. So that's number one, winging it. Yeah. What's number two? Number two is financials. Either people don't understand money or don't have an understanding of how to be able to generate money, don't understand how to leverage money. They haven't got a clue about cash. And they either go or grow broke. They either run out of money because the cash burn rate is too significant for the amount of income coming into the business or there just isn't sufficient income in the business to warrant the size of business that they've grown to, and as a result, they run out of money. That makes a lot of sense. I've seen that happen hundreds of times. And the third one? Well, the third one is probably the most complex. It's about being able to understand that for every action, there is an ultimate reaction. And we need to understand that every business, whether it's online or offline, whether it's a service or a product, there are eight segments in every business. 
And not only do we need to understand what they are, but we need to understand fundamentally how they work collectively, that if we improve one, the impact it has on all of the seven parts of business, that we don't grow one at the scale or at the risk of damaging another. The biggest fundamental problem and the one that caused such an angst to our business is that the business that we were supporting, this 886 stores across the country, had splintered because departments didn't talk to each other and sales didn't understand the impact it had on marketing or marketing didn't have on the understanding of customer service and delivery or finance. It had created a silo mentality inside that they didn't understand how one department had an impact on the other. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the things that we see a lot of is silo mentality, empire building, fiefdoms. And one of the biggest obstacles that we see is that ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. So why is it that leaders allow that to happen? It's interesting because of the research that we looked at, we found that the majority of leaders have still got an intent to try and succeed. However, the downside is is that they've lost clarity on what success looks like for the business. And instead, they've translated that into what success looks like for them. Okay, so there's an awful lot of selfish management, selfish leadership going on and people being too eye-centred rather than focusing on the mission, the common purpose. Very much so. You know the old adage, there's no I in team, but there is in win. And as we tend to lose focus, and again, that often reflects back on the fact that the business plan either hasn't been updated recently or isn't being shared between either the whole team or the wider aspect of the employees within, an understanding as to how my role as a part-time bathroom cleaner has an impact on the overall mission. If we segment and dilute and it's a, oh, that's a need to know, and you don't need to know, then it leads to people becoming frustrated. It leads to people starting to switch off. And at a point where the business wants to accelerate and wants to exceed, where there's the necessity to be able to get people to either work harder or overperform, then we can't do that unless we understand the impact it has on the overall result. And as a result, we create our own internal dialogue as to what overperformance looks like. And it's usually so dissected or divulged away from what the business is aiming to achieve that it just creates fractions within. What I find really interesting is that often leaders don't understand the role of leadership. What is the role of leaders? Okay, so this will come back to my military training. And although I never professed to have been an officer in the British Army, I certainly spent a fair amount of time at Sandhurst as an instructor and looked to the leaders within the military as an inspiration to establish as to what does it take to be able to lead what is still regarded as the most professional fighting force in the world. And the Latin motto to which all officers swear allegiance to is serve to lead, not lead to serve. And it's understanding that your first primary role as a leader is to be able to serve the people in which you are leading, enabling them to become the best that they can be, as opposed to, right chaps, follow me. So what is service? I guess to answer that question, I would suggest that for every time that we are promoted is actually a demotion. Because while we're at the sharp end, while we're at the front end, the only thing that we tend to take for granted is looking after ourselves. As a foot soldier, my job is to drive forward. As soon as you reach dizzy ranks of corporal, your job is to be able to support the people who are moving forward and understand that in a military uh, infantry section you've got between 10 and 12 other people to support and your job is to be able to provide all of the help and support the resources the environment in which they can thrive and the further up the chain of command we go the more people you're responsible for and the more impact your leadership can either have or on the positive or negative outcomes of the people that are you're responsible for it's really interesting i was interviewing sam sethi a couple of days ago, and when he went through Sandhurst, his commanding officer asked him what the difference between a private and a general was. And he used the very interesting exercise, which is he put his nose up against a map. You're a private. Move a step back. You're a corporal or a sergeant. 
And then you go back and back and back and you go from being stuck right in the detail to having a big overview. And I think it's very difficult for a lot of leaders to remember what it's like to have your nose on the map. And I think that you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the whole motto of serve to lead plays to another conversation that I had with Stephen Covey a few years ago, where I asked him a very bland and banal question, but he came back with a fantastic response, which is the greatest among us serve the most. And service is not servitude. Our job as managers, business owners, is to hire the best people and then help them become the best they possibly can be. So what I'm curious about is why does that message get lost? And why do leaders allow their egos to get in the way of helping their people become the best they can be? I think that probably comes down to what we've been discussing in my ones-to-ones today with regards to the internal scripts to which we've all inherited from, as you've suggested, 300,000 years of heritage. (laughs) And it doesn't matter as to what we believe. It doesn't matter as to what we're born into or the circumstances we are. There is a default that says at a point in time, if we are under a set amount of pressure or expectation or outcome, that we default back to the environment to which we are most comfortable or familiar with. And the downside is, is that heritage teaches us that we have failed to understand the importance of servitude and service at the expense of a capitalist community that says, but I want some, we are all equal, but some are more equal than others. Mm -hmm. And we have this perception that the only way I can demonstrate leadership is to, to have, to own the empire build. And it's exactly the opposite of actually what we ought to be doing in business is to help others to become the best that they can be. How many leaders or managers feel comfortable in hiring someone better at doing the job than they are? The good ones. Well, the few. It's quite an alarming rate with regards to all I want to do is hire a mini-me. And yet the moment we find someone that's a mini-you, you feel threatened by it because they're likely to be wanting your job. Well, surely the whole point of being able to own a business is to be able to exit it and still enjoy the income. And the best person to be able to do that is a mini-you that's going to be able to replicate everything that you've done. Well, this again points to another fundamental issue that I come across every day, which is that ego is the enemy. What is it that causes people that level of attachment that they cannot let go of their fiction of control and power that prevents them from allowing people to burgeon into who they, the best producer that they can possibly be. Why does that happen? I think I'm going to pinch the words of two others, probably far better known than myself. First of all, Jim Rowan, you are the sum of the five people you surround yourself and are influenced by. And the problem is, is the fact that whilever we live in a society that starts to imply, either on social media or otherwise, that materialistic requirement is is a measure of success, that we feel compelled in an environment to be able to, f- to, to compete in that type of a world, as opposed to understanding that the more we serve, the easier it becomes to serve, and the more we serve and have impact on, the better the results for all, us included as well as them. And I'll come back to that in a second, if I may. But the other one is Duncan Ballantyne. I was really fortunate enough to have spent... 24 hours with Duncan Ballantyne quite a while, quite a number of years ago. My nan, who is my surrogate mum, really, love her to bits. But my nan is referred to in our family as the woman that'll never buy you socks. Um, <laughs> and what we mean by that is she's the nan that you don't take, you get what you don't expect. And rather than getting brut aftershaves and a brand new pair of socks every Christmas, I recall at 14 years old being bought a Haynes car manual for a Mark II Ford Capri. <laughs> And I looked to her and I said, Nan, this is a lovely present. Thank you. But I'm 14. I don't drive. And without a split second of delay, she simply said, yet. And ironically, on my 17th birthday, which car did I go out and buy? Well, the one that I knew how to service. Nevertheless, 
we digress a little. When I first left the military, my nan wrote to me. She's a, she's a lovely letter writer. She doesn't like the phone. And she wrote to me and she said, I've bought you a present for what's going to be really profitable and valuable in your post-military career, but I'm going to have to give it to you before your birthday and before Christmas because it expires before both. And Duncan Ballantyne, I'm not sure if he still does, but certainly he used to, once a quarter did a day in the life where 15 people were allowed to spend 24 hours with Duncan and his senior management team. Now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't necessarily overly impressed with the contribution we got from Duncan himself, other than I got a copy of his book and I found that really interesting. But to meet his senior leadership team and the other people that had paid a fair price to be on the day was instrumental with being able to learn how to think differently. And one of the things I picked up from one Duncan's book and two that was replicated throughout the day is I was a bum till I was 37 years old and I was a millionaire by the time I was 40. And the only thing I did differently is to surround myself by a different level of friends and understand that I needed to be the bum in the room, the stupidest person in the room, as opposed to continually trying to profess to being the smartest person in the room. Well, this plays to one of my heroes, Columbo. Columbo always got the perpetrator because he was always more not okay than the murderer. He was never the smartest person in the room and he struggled deliberately. But the other thing is surround yourself with people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. And this is something that I see happen far too often where people want to try and prove themselves. Your job as a business leader is to find the best people, get the best out of them, and galvanize everybody towards that common purpose. Organizations and individuals who have a purpose invariably outperform organizations and individuals who don't have one. So I'm really curious, in terms of the Add a Zero program that you've put together, how do you deal with purpose? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think there are, there are two depths to this. First of all, unfortunately, we still tend to live or at least operate on a day-to-day basis in a quite a superficial world where numbers and key indicators. So we've talked about this add a zero business challenge and, and what that might mean for a business. But then we modified the message and said, well, it's add a zero to your personal disposable income. And what would that mean for either you or your family or or the people that you serve? And then we needed to be able to associate it with our own mission, which is to be able to build a retreat, probably in the south of France or possibly Portugal, depending on land and and availability, to be able to provide a retreat for ex-service users with post-traumatic stress disorder, which was the condition I was diagnosed with in 2003, in order that they can have some form of respite with their family in a safe place. I know full well that for the eight months that I lived under section with PTSD, being prodded and poked by an H-grade psychiatry student, it was having a detrimental effect to not only my mental well-being, but my physicality and my abilities to be able to recover. And yet being discharged from hospital, I must admit, thankfully to my ex-wife and against their better judgment, simply to go on a two-week holiday to be able to get out of an environment that was proving to be detrimental to my health, even though that I was in a safe environment, and to go back to a place where you could breathe clean air, that you could hear laughter, that you could see day-to-day life and civilization happening in a calm and confident manner, away from the clinical treatment centre of where I was based, was fundamental into my own recovery. And I know that PTSD and service life and there's been a lot of encouraging um, progression in that area since I left in 2003 but I wanted to be able to make my own mark and be able to say it would be wonderful to be able to think that having recovered from that sufficiently to now be of of use to service and service to a community again that we could generate a sufficient income that we could go on and provide something as a legacy for other peoples to follow. What a fantastic mission. I'm really curious to understand the values that underpin that. Values is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I've only been in business since I left the service in 2003, 2005 when I first set the business up. 
And it was interesting because when we first bought, when I first bought a business, they'd already got this mission statement and a value statement and this and the other. And very quickly, you start to inherit what was gone before. It had been trading for 14 years. It had got a good order book. It made sense. And then over a period of probably two or three years, I started to question a lot of the things that we did and why did we do them? Rather than, well, it's always been done that way. It's to, well, well why has it been done that way? And, and does that align with what I believe? My True North has the strap line, the UK's leading ethical coaching company. Now, I don't want to ever profess that we went out there and badged ourselves with this title. We simply called ourselves My True North and we carried on trading. I felt it was massively important to be able to be one of service and two to be open and honest and transparent. And therefore, for the first 12 months, we would send company management accounts to our clients. We would share our bank balance with the people that we served. And to some, that was quite a frustration. They would look at the income that they were paying, the investment that they were making. They would look at the profit margins that we were publishing on a monthly basis and say, hang on a minute. I don't get anywhere near that type of profit margin. And I says, well, okay, well, there's clearly more work that we need to do in helping you to support that level of growth. I want to demonstrate to you what scale looks like. And in order to be able to do so, I need to be able to walk that walk and talk that talk. Therefore, I'm showing you what we're doing in a hope that we can help to be able to create the same for yourself. And in doing so, we started to be able to review our own set of values, our own mission statement, our own identity to understand as to where do we feel best that we serve our, the people that we work with and likewise how do we identify the people that we are best working with interesting one of the things that we teach our clients is that when you're starting out trying to scale your business you start with your personal vision and everything stems from that because you can't separate J. Allen, the human being, from J. Allen, the business owner. And you're doing stuff for a reason, which invariably isn't really about money. People who say that they're motivated by money are not really understanding where their motivation comes from because motivation by money is essentially being motivated by a token. And it's what that money enables you to do in terms of the choices that you can make, the investments that you can make, creating the right kind of secure environment for your family, or in your case, being able to create the foundation for your PTSD retreat. And what I'm constantly fascinated by is how easily people get subverted from that mission, from that personal vision, because they're doing things because it is the way it's always been done. Everyone else is doing it. How do you help your clients become courageous enough to ask the challenging, difficult, uncomfortable, ugly mirror kind of questions? For that, I have to accredit a very good friend of mine and colleague called David Heiner, another motivational know, speaker on the circuit, and an incredible, credible guy. I love him to bits. But... I interviewed David a number of years ago with regards to SMART and goal setting and why SMART is incredibly dumb. Why on earth would anyone set achievable or realistic goals? There's nothing worse than being able to set a goal that you know you can achieve. So like yourself, but perhaps taking it in a different tangent, when I work with clients, I tend to work backwards and say, let's assume that three, four, five years from now, you're going to sell the business. And you're going to sell the business so you can enjoy the rest of your life doing whatever it is that you feel your personal mission is to do, be that feeding kids in South Africa or building a hospital in Kuala Lumpur or whatever it is that you feel your calling in life is to be able to leave a legacy to, to the world rather than simply to your next of kin. And what would, what would selling the business in five years look like? How much money would you need to be able to generate in order to be able to go off and do the things that you want to do without worry of money or time? And then who are you going to sell the business to? And then more fundamentally, why the hell would they pay that for it? And ironically, if we can reverse psychology, the whole thing, and say a business isn't about a lifestyle because once you've got to a certain set of lifestyle – Business doesn't stop. We need to be able to create the legacy within the business that says the business is going to continue regardless of whether you're interacting or intervening within it. I certainly recall 
the time I made the choice to sell the business was when I took six months out. And in the period of six months that I'd been away, I came to concentrate on a new project. I came back and found that they'd recruited three new people without any knowledge to me of the business owner. And it, it became very evident that the business had now got the trajectory and the, and the traction, the systems, the processes, the people to be able to continue to manifest itself. I sold it with 22 staff. There's currently 33 staff now in the business. It continues to trade without me, although I'm grateful to be a minority shareholder these days and continue to enjoy some of the, uh, the privileges of. But it's about being able to say, well, what does your personal mission look like? What is it you want to leave as a legacy for having been there rather than the, just the dash between the, the date of birth and the date of death on the, on the headstone? What does that dash need to represent? How much money do we need to generate in order for that to become a reality this year as opposed to, by the time I'm 60, I'd love to be able to, and then who are you going to sell the business to as an ongoing concern in order to be able to realise that? And why the hell would they pay that for it? What do we need to do? What set of values do we need to have that are going to be so reflective in what what we're going to sell to somebody else as a value that enables us to be able to generate so much more than an EBITDA value, which is just ridiculous. Well, you touched on something that is very close to my heart as well. I've always found goal setting to be a largely onanistic intellectual exercise, and it wasn't something that I found compelling. And I came across, I can't remember who the guy who created it is, my bad, but dumb goals. So dream-based, uplifting, method-friendly, behavior-based. And then you can smarten them up later, but I agree that realistic, probably not the best framework there. That should be repeatable. I interviewed a pal of mine, Rob Goddard, who runs a company that specializes in taking businesses to exit and selling them. And over 80% of their clients exit on day one with a check in their hands for the valuation of the business with zero earnout. And this, again, strikes me as something that puzzles me. Why would anybody want to get to the point where you theoretically sell the business and then you have to become an employee where a large chunk of your payout is in the gift of somebody who can fiddle the books. And then you end up kind of marching time until you can finally go off and play golf or whatever it is that you want to do. And goal setting, I'd like to touch on that. Evidence suggests that people with goals tend to actually achieve them and those without them tend to become part of someone else's plan. What do you teach your clients around goal setting in order to make sure that it is compelling for them and it plays? It, they have an emotional attachment to seeing it through, through the tough times, through the knockbacks, through the rejections and all of that, and they still stay motivated so that when they wake up on a Monday morning, they cannot wait to go to work. Well, there's a number of answers to that, really. First of all, we need to be able to help understand what personal goals look like as opposed to the usual answer that you get when you first start working with someone with regards to the business goals. Well, we'd love to be able to get to X turnover. Or we'd love to be able to have so many different numbers of staff. or We'd love to have a, a second venue somewhere. They're just materialistic things that enable us to measure and match against the other competitive crowd that we're trying to move away from. So being able to understand what personal goals looks like is usually the first hurdles to overcome. Secondly, it's, are they thinking big enough? So we often ask the question, okay, so so you've delivered the first set of values of what you're looking to achieve. What would that look like if we added another zero to it? What would you then be able to go on and do? Okay, so, so that's interesting. And you see the, the penny drop. Jeez, I've never thought that big before. Okay, so, so what would it look like if we added another zero? And then I give an example of the global sustainability goals from the UN. The UN have determined that there are 17 problems in the world right now that are threatening the global sustainability of the planet. These are things such as poverty or starvation with regards to housing or safety and security, pollution of water. There's a whole series of goals that the UN have identified that are world-threatening or 
species-threatening conditions that we needed to be able to take control of. And they've estimated that, or first of all, they've set a goal. They've said that they want to be able to try and not necessarily recover these, not overcome these, but they want to be able to get these back into a measurable format, into a, a measure that we can actually manage and become sustainable to by 2030. So at the moment, we've got 11 years left to try and make good on these 17 goals. And then they've also said it's going to cost in the region of $120 trillion well to achieve these into a measurable format. Now, bearing in mind, there are only $90 trillion in printed money in circulation at present. So it's going to cost us $30 trillion more than we've actually got cash for to be able to try and bring back into a manageable format. And then if you can start to look at your goals and say, are they really big enough? Or if we go for something that is so, so huge, we call them BFAGs, big, fat, hairy, audacious goals. But if we create a BFAG that is so, so big that we are fearful of not being able to achieve it, we've got to have every single effort, every single hour of our day from every single member of staff working at 100%, 100 100% of the time just to try and have an impact on it that it becomes so fearful that the time we've got left not to be working towards it deems that we'll never achieve it in the first place, all of a sudden starts to find a different set of motivational skills that brings to fore our best thinking, that while we are thinking big, the small things simply fall into place to enable us to concentrate on the bigger things. So the other thing I wanted to quickly share is an example of how we did that in the military. Please. In my second tour of Bosnia, I was serving with an advanced forward troop of infantry. I would, like I say, I was, a, I was a medic. I wasn't a fighting soldier. I was there to support fighting soldiers. And we found ourselves with a commanding officer that was adamant he was going to get a CBE from the tour. <laughs> and as a result, put us into the most precarious of situations on a day-to-day -day basis in order to look good. And on one of these days, a patrol of 12 soldiers plus one came round the corner in Gornovakuf, just outside Mekonichgrad in Bosnia, and were confronted with a gang of about 45, 46 youths, I think is the best expression. Their parents had already been killed by ethnic cleansing, and these were teenage kids that had come together to try and survive, and were doing so by attacking the enemy with AK-47s that they picked up along the way. And we turned the corner and we were inundated, probably about five to one with firepower and motive. And that moment, that singular moment where it was a case of, oh shit, <laughs> now what? When they looked at us and said, well, now what do we do? And we looked at them and said, now what do we do? And there was that momentary panic that said, we're not quite sure what the outcome's gonna be on either side. When you can put yourself into a position that is so, so scary that anything that you make a decision for, either before or afterwards, isn't as impactful as what happens in the next five, six, seven seconds, then it gives you the authority and the confidence to be able to say, do you know what? I'm 48 years old now, and every decision I've made so far has enabled me to get to where I am today. Stop having fear about making big decisions. So far, you've got by. Learn the lesson, move on, what can we take from it? So on that note, one of the things that you learn is that people who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I certainly see it in my work where people keep making the same mistakes because they haven't created a learning culture. One of the things that I'm really impressed by, I, I read a book by a guy called Ray Dalio called Principles. Have you come across it? I can't say how. Okay, I'll put it on my list. fabulous book. Ray Dalio created a company called Riverbridge. It's the world's largest privately owned hedge fund, fifth largest company in the world. And what was really interesting about the culture that he created was it was built upon principles. And one of those principles is never hide the truth. And don't punish failure, record it and learn from it. And they have a failure log. What you do get punished and fired for is hiding it. And I think one of the most important qualities of any leader 
is vulnerability. The Latin root of the word vulnerable is vulnerabilis, and it means to put yourself in harm's way, make yourself woundable, and do it anyway. So in terms of leadership, your CEO in Bosnia clearly wasn't vulnerable, and his ego got in the way and put lives at risk. What I'm curious about is if you look at the best leaders that you have ever worked with and who you hold a candle to, what were their qualities in addition to vulnerability? Well, I'm happy to, uh, to name with pride that I was fortunate enough to serve under a gentleman by the name of, when I first met him, Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Rowan. Jeremy Rowan was in the medical corps. I was part of the medical corps. And in the medical corps, you're recognised for your medical qualification as well as your, your military qualification. And he was a lieutenant colonel because not only of his command ability in the military, but also his medical capability and understood both the profession and the trade. Lieutenant Colonel Rowan, at the time that I was there, was my commanding officer, my last commanding officer, and was renowned for being quite a maverick, for not following the rules. It was quite alarming. And forgive me for if I speak ill of turn of such a great man. But he wasn't the norm in any way, shape or form. He was always pushing the boundaries. He was always questioning as to why or to just simply get on and do it anyway. I think it was one of the first two lessons that I learned when I first fell under his command when he said, there are two things I need to be able to share with you, Alan. I won't do his accent, but he was Southern Irish and it was great. And he had a lovely, strong Irish accent. And he said, there's two things I want to teach you, Alan. He says, if you adhere to both of them, I guarantee that me and you are going to get along and you're going to have a very successful career in the military. And if you break either of them, I will break you. <laughs> okay. The first of which is, if it's a big problem, if it's going to affect lots and lots of people, if it's likely to have a big impact, don't get in the way. Don't ask too many questions. Simply do as you're required and do your job. The army are the best in the world. I can hear him saying it now. The army are the best in the world at being able to manage and modify and overcome big problems. So don't become a problem by getting in the way of progress. Meanwhile, if it's a small problem, if it's not going to affect that many people, in actual fact, the best example I can give you is if it's a problem of your making, or it's only going to affect people like you. Don't tell anyone, because we don't give a shit. <laughs> We're busy fixing big problems. Simply let us know when you've fixed it. And that was, that was my first learning of the military, it was with regards to the size of problem determines the size of aptitudes towards it. The other one is forgiveness is far easier than permission. <laughs> Bloody do it. If you see it as the right answer, just get on and do it and say, oh, I'm sorry afterwards, but by the way, it's now done as opposed to continually forming steering committees and questionnaires and surveys, because nothing gets done. Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Rowan went on to be three-star General Rowan, Deputy Commander of Tri-Service Land, the second highest qualification in the military, as a result of being a maverick and not breaking the rules. Uh, interestingly, when he got promoted to Brigadier and General and moved to MOD London, 74 of his junior managers all opted to go and work under his command because they knew that he was leading the way forward and we could all learn so much more from him as opposed to stay in Germany under somebody else who we didn't know. Well, you've touched on a thing that's really close to my heart, which is the rules are there to be tested and broken. And certainly in the sales environment, if you follow the rules of what everybody else does, you'll sound, look and feel like everyone else and you make yourself into a commodity. And one of the things that's been really inspirational for me is the recognition by David Sandler when he originally set the system up. He'd gone zero for 52 sales meetings without making a sale. And it was at that point he thought, better ask myself some awkward and tough questions. So why do we do it this way? What if we do things in the opposite way? What if we close at the beginning, do a presentation at the end, we focus on emotion, we don't focus on educational reason and logic, that if they ask us for a proposal, we say no. If they ask us for a discount, we say no. And I think one of the key challenges here is that it takes real courage to be a great inspirational leader. And 
people have a tendency to worry about what other people think, how other people are going to perceive them. This stems from a need to be liked and approval addiction, people pleasing, but it also stems from a lack of faith in oneself. So I know that you and I both work in this field. What I'm curious to understand is how do people find the reserves to be willing to take those risks, to risk failure in role? Because I don't think you can roll, uh, fail in identity. You can only fail in role unless you choose to abdicate your power. And so what I'm really curious about is where do they find the courage to be able to do that and say, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. And they take that risk instead of sacrificing everything. The risk of being too cliche. For me, I was taught, again in the military, very early on, fear and failure are one and the same. The old acronym, fear expected and realized, which determines how to fail. But There's a lovely expression that I was taught in basic training. Can't means won't, and won't means jail. (laughs) I'm sorry I can't do that. No, what you're actually saying is, I don't think I can, so I'm not going to try. And as a result, I'm refusing. I would sooner fail a thousand times than not take parts to find out how to win. So if we can take away failure, and if we can take away fear and replace it with the cliche of feedback and say, what can I learn from this? Didn't get the promotion I wanted. Great. Gives me more chance to be able to apply harder to be able to get the next one. Didn't get the equipment we wanted. Great. Means that I've got to learn how to cope with what I've got already. Broke my ankle. Great. Gives me the chance to train harder. Far better to break my ankle in Civvy Street than it is on the streets in Bosnia. How do we take the feedback from every single example, every single lesson, every single day and say, what can I learn from this in order to be able to apply the Kaizen philosophy of incremental improvement to say, how do I improve on it next time I give it a go? It's the old Edison light bulb moment, isn't it? It's the 1,000 or 998 prototypes that everyone said, when are you going to give up? And he said, well, why would I? I'm merely one step away from the next opportunity. Well, this then raises another question, which is that if we have a script that's telling us what we can and we can't do, if we have a limiting belief system that tells us what's possible, uh, what's probable rather than possible, then we become a victim or a prisoner of our own limiting beliefs. So, What are the kind of questions you're using in order to help people to open their mind to develop that more of that growth mindset, that possibility thinking, so that they can break themselves free of those shackles? If time or money were neither an objection, what would you actually do? Full stop. If we could take away the concept that time is a problem, oh, I'd love to do that, but I haven't got the time. If only I was younger. If we could take time away and understand that time is infinite, just our time here perhaps is more limited. Um, And it doesn't matter as to whether, you know, Branson, all the sugar, all the other greats, it doesn't matter who or who we're inspired by. It doesn't matter how much money they've got. We've only got 24 hours in a day. It's how we choose to apply that time which will make the biggest reward and biggest difference to our tomorrow. So if time nor money were an objection, because there's, let's say an infinite amount of money, there's $90 trillion worth of printed cash in the world. How much do you need to be able to affect what you want to do? And how much time is that going to take, either singularly or by collectively working with others to be able to collaboratively work to a greater goal for all? Interestingly, I also use the analogy of cat and mouse. Because money loves to play the game chase. Money is the mouse, and we are the old wizened cat. And yet, it doesn't matter how many times that we've seen the mouse, every time it pops its head out, we go chasing after it. And the mouse loves to play chase. Every time it sees the cat, it runs out and it goes for the cheese and all that type of stuff. And the cat will either run for it straight away or, or stand and stance ready to be able to pounce. And the mouse tempts it and teases it and this and the other. Very few 
cats catch the mouse because the mouse is a lot quicker and a lot smarter and it will continue to run away and play. That is money. That is money per se. doesn't matter whether you're an employee or an employer. doesn't matter whether you want an income or a salary or to be able to make a big difference. Whenever you are chasing cash, cash will continue to play the game chase. The moment you change your philosophy, you change your vision, your outcome, and start to chase impact. How much impact can I have in the world? The moment you change your emphasis to impact, mouse gets bored because you're not chasing it. And it comes and finds you and says, how much of me do you need in order to have an impact? Very good advice. What I'd like to do is ask you this awkward question. If you had your golden ticket and you could go back and advise your idiot 23-year-old self, what advice would you give him? Well, I guess I'm being rather philosophical now because I would say do everything that you previously did because the person that you're becoming is worthwhile the pain that you're going to go through. It's very interesting. In Sufism and in Taoism, there's a concept that you're already perfect and then you stray away from that path as life starts taking chunks out of you. And the idea that what you're trying to do is get back to your authentic self. So I'd like to wrap up on the concept of authenticity. When you're coaching your clients and you see those inconsistencies, how do you help them recognize them for what they are that has taken them away from their natural perfection? And what kind of resistance do you get? Initially, we get a lot of resistance very quickly because no one wants to be shown the ugly mirror. Interestingly enough, it would appear that the majority of the clients who I work with are far more appreciative of my Sant Major ex-military stance than they are of my Cuddly J stance and are happy that having built the no like trust and the bond rapport with them, that they are appreciative of the kick in the shins that perhaps they need to be reminded of Magnetic North and True North and this subtle difference with the massive impact, Scandinavia or North Pole? Where do you want to be? Interesting. So let's wrap up on this. What are you reading or what podcast videos do you recommend that people listen to, read, watch? I've just subscribed to this guy called Marcus County. He's rather quite cool. <laughs> I'm catching up on him, this and the other. I'm a big fan of Nick Bradley, the entrepreneur who talks about scale and growth, who's a good friend of mine. I'm reading Tim Ferriss at the moment. I've just finished reading the autobiography of Desmond Tutu interviewing the Dalai Lama, oh, well. all about happiness and, and smile. And what's on my bookshelf waiting to be read at present, or well, I've just been given five Sandler books, which will make an interesting reading for the next three or four weeks. But I finished reading Traction earlier this month, and I found that fascinating. Yeah, there's some of the things that I've got on the, on the go at the moment. But then I've also, over the last 10 or 11 years, I think I've read about 700, nearly 720 books so far on entrepreneurship and scale. And we've created a recommended reading list of about 17 books That's that fabulous. have been the biggest impact and influence in my life. One of which, and again, it's, it's an old book, but it's a bit of a cliche. I've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad 17 times now. I read it every Christmas usually read it on holiday in the middle of the year as well. And every time I read it, I get something different from it. So Kiyosaki is really, really clever in being able to, having written a book, which can be so impactful at so many different levels. Every time that I read it, I get something different because we're in a different stage and I get a different text entirely from it. Very powerful. There's a book that I read a while back, which is a strong recommend, which is Peter Block's The Right Use of Power. Have you come across that? I can't say how. Really interesting. I'll send you a copy of the Thank audio. You. So, Jay, thank you so much. This has been inspirational, but also very insightful and impactful. And how can people get hold of you? I guess the best way is through the website, www.mytruenorth.biz, B-I-Z. But other than that, I'm on all of the usual social media channels under J. Allen UK, J-A-Y-A-L-L-E-N-U-K. And I know that you are launching a very select coaching program. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. 
So we currently have what's called Pathfinder, which is more of a masterclass teaching exercise for an introduction to Mitre North. Our primary offering is a normal mastermind program, although I say it's normal mastermind program. It's run with a very military influence. We meet six times a year, and it's it's very much themed around my time in the military and the book that I wrote, uh, Battlefield to Boardroom. But our new offering, the very exclusive offering that you're referring to, is called Summit Seeker. And it's about being able to look at the Adder Zero Challenge and bringing the right people into the business to be able to support business owners to be able to scale and legacy over a 12 or 18-month period. Wonderful. Jay, thank you. Delighted. Thanks for the time. This is Marcus Cowkey signing off on the Inquisitor podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, then please contact me either via LinkedIn, email at mcowkey at sander.com, or if you'd like to have a chat, my number is 07515-937-221. And if you found this podcast useful, then please like, comment, and share it. And if there's a podcast that you'd like me to conduct an interview about, then please get in touch and let me know what the subject is. And if there's someone specific you'd like me to interview, then let me know and I'll endeavor to get an interview with them. That's Marcus Cowkey signing off. Happy selling.